0: Welcome to Friendly Anarchism. This is Katherine. Want to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah. I'm an old friend of Catherine's from college.
0: I'm so excited to see you. I'm excited to so see good. you. This so good. It's wonderful. There's nothing like old friends.
1: True that. True that.
0: Um, so we were just talking about your current position. You work with conflict resolution.
1: Yeah. So I work as the program assistant for a conflict and dispute resolution master's program. Mm-hmm. And I work the front of the office. Um, literally the front desk, I greet all the visitors, Um, I do customer service, uh, and I also do programmatic office work stuff like scheduling and records and outreach, advertising.
0: So what do you like about conflict resolution?
1: I think when I first found the job position, initially I thought I'm not qualified for this because I don't have a background in conflict resolution. And then I thought about it a little bit more, and I realized that a lot of the job were things that I have experience in, like events coordination and office work, um, but also that conflict is a part of everything. Mm -hmm. It's part part of all of our lives, and it's definitely a part of a lot of the work that I've done, which is community organizing work and student affairs, student organizing, nonprofit work that are deeply embroiled <laughs> in conflict a lot of the time, although um, it, that's never necessarily pointed out or even acknowledged. And uh, I thought about, um, at the time, an organization that I had done some work with, a queer organization in the town where I grew up, Uh, the executive director, who was someone that I had met before and knew of from the community, um, had been ousted by the board of directors over something. Um, and it was just one instance and a really long line of instances with this organization, one of the only queer organizations where I'm from, um, in which somebody, um, was excommunicated from the organization and from social circles as well um, because of conflict and there wasn't any kind of an accountability process or any kind of restorative process to be able to rebuild connections or at least make things cordial Mm -hmm. um, and welcoming to everyone Mm -hmm. knowing that this is also the organization that organizes pride um, that this person doesn't cease to be a part of the community so what does it look like from there? Um, and unfortunately, and what was relayed to me about what happened in this particular instance, this person was just pushed out. Um, and I thought about that and just realized that I wanted to be closer to people doing the good work of teaching conflict resolution um, and being able to be a part of that process and seeing people go out into the world and do that good work in whatever capacity I could. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: in activism, we have a real problem, I think, with exiling people. Um, I think one of the things about an anarchist sort of utopian future is the idea that the only type of sanction we need is social sanctions. We don't have to use economic sanctions or physical sanctions in order to sort of, I hate the word police, um, but (laughs) keep, you know, sort of keep uh, society functioning the way that within um, uh, ethical and boundaries of behaviors, you know, to keep keep things moving smoothly. Um, so we want it to just be social sanctions. So I think then in the activist community, sometimes we are so harsh with social sanctions as our only method of um, resolving conflict. Even if it's not resolved, you resolve the issue by just stopping it from happening anymore, aka throwing people out into the outer space
1: yeah that's a really effective way of putting it i i think that the idea of sanction is, is especially appropriate in activist communities because um people take things extremely personally because there are deepest ties and the people who are closest to us and the people who understand what we're going through and then if somebody messes up it's taken really hard um And what happened in this instance and that I've seen happen a lot of the time is that we forget that we all mess up um, and everybody makes mistakes and we all make bad mistakes too, like really big ones. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted to see changes in myself and changes that I could help instigate with the students in our program um, and the work that they will do professionally, knowing that there are also queer students in our program And they've noticed me pretty immediately because my presentation is often read as queer. It's more often read as queer than not read as queer. And um, in being noticed, I immediately made these connections with those students. And those students are really focused on going out in the world and working particularly in queer issues Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, for the most part. Some of them... Some of them are more invested in working in things that are a little bit more outside of that. But similarly to there being conflict in everything, almost everything also has a queer aspect to it mm. as well. So getting this job was kind of a big rationalization of all of the things that I'm passionate about. That I can definitely relate a lot of them to conflict. And I can also relate it the conflict um, resolution and mediation as well as student affairs and generally college work back to the things that I'm passionate about too.
0: So wonderful. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. I love we're talking to each other and it seems like we both come to this, um, come to coming to good places. And it's so wonderful yeah. to have friends and see friends go on that journey and come to those places. So yeah. it's nice to share this with you. Um, thank you. so conflict, revolu- why is conflict so hard? <laughs> that sounds like, I guess kind of a silly question, but it's also like, what is it that makes it so difficult in our society to talk to each other, you know, and yeah. to, to, to see each other's points of view? Um, I think a lot of the times in activism too, we're dealing with like really painful stuff. Yeah. It's like extremely personal, painful yeah. issues. <laughs> Kitty cat. <laughs> You're making this hard. It's Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're here at my house with my cat, just so you
1: know. Getting a little extra Harold love right now. Yeah, oh my cat's name is Harold. <laughs> um, I think part of the reason is that I think culturally and socially we're not taught very constructive methods of talking things out. And so, especially when we're children, if somebody does something to harm somebody else or does something that hurts somebody else's feelings... There's not really a conversation of like, what is it that you did and why did you do it and let's actually talk about it. It's just, don't do that again and Mm -hmm. say you're sorry. Um, Knowing that some things are gonna happen by accident um, and some things are gonna happen again um, if we're not gonna actually talk about why they were done or how they happened, Mm -hmm. rather than the just don't do that again.
0: Yeah, and also being taught that you solve problems by running to authority. Yeah, too. So you uh-huh. have a problem with somebody, you go tell the teacher, you go tell a cop, you go mm-hmm. tell somebody else, you
1: outsource the conflict. Yeah. You know what I mean? We can't be effective um, solvers of conflict mm-hmm. ourselves. Like, mm-hmm. we can't have our own dialogues just of our own volition and that we're strong enough to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that... There's generally an issue of having enough trust in ourselves and knowing that it's it's a part of the process to make mistakes and not every single conflict or conversation is going to be the same. And that's part of the point of having the conversation is that that's part of working through it and everything is going to be individual and a little bit different every time. Yeah. Um, and so the getting the practice part of it and learning the different pieces of... Um, this is what it looks like when conflict happens and conflict happens all the time. And these are some healthy ways of being able to take care of your feelings around it. Um, and this is why conversation and like the thought process of addressing it and sitting with it is really important.
0: Mm, how do you do that? Since we're sort a bit of an educational show, do you want to share just some sort of conflict resolution basics?
1: Yeah, Totally. So, I will actually bring up a a, a recent instance that I had some conflict with a friend um, and some actions having to do with interpersonal relationships that were upsetting to me. And that we had a pretty intense conversation by text, um, which was one way to do it. Um, But when it finally got to the point that I felt like we were continuing to repeat ourselves and both of our perspectives were not necessarily going to come to an amicable end um, or an understanding that um, was necessarily going to be as constructive by text message. I I suggested that we take some time, just take some time to cool off and work through our perspectives and then come back and talk in person and that we could have an in-person dialogue And then also be able to hear each other out um, and acknowledge that there were things that I didn't know and mistakes that I made in that process that I also hurt this person. Um, And so I think that one of the biggest parts of conflict for me is both the process of being able to say I messed up too. And not just have a one-sided dialogue of like this is why you're upsetting me but also like I know that you're upset in this situation too we're both upset um and also knowing that a lot of conflict is not necessarily emergency based it doesn't have to be solved right now we mm. can give it a little bit of time
2: mm.
1: um and some air and come back to it later and I gave it I think a few months and I just recently texted this person and said that I wanted to follow through and have that conversation. Um, And I think that that's the other important part of conflict and being able to resolve it is if you decide to like call a cool off period or some time to a conversation, don't let it drop. Um, Follow through on finishing that conversation Mm. and being able to come to a resolution and know that it's not always going to be what you want it to be, because some things, some con- conflict can't be resolved.
2: Yeah. So,
1: what about you?
0: I, it's interesting to talk about texting, because the more activism I do, um, I am a very passionate person, and I, I'm not afraid of conflict, Obviously, part—I mean—part of being an anarchist is saying that conflict is necessary to solve problems, and you have yeah. to, but it's also really hard, and a lot of people in the scene are very passionate, and um, that cool down thing is really important. And one of the things I've noticed um, is that written communications are a terrible form of communication. <laughs> yeah, um, I, it's also there's an ableist component to written communications too. That it's really hard. T- it's it's an art, like getting what you actually mean into written word that's understood correctly by the next person reading it, that is a very hard thing to do. I feel like a lot of the times our conversations, we're talking to ourselves when we're reading somebody else's words because all you know you can't hear their voice, you can't hear their inflection, you can't hear their intention, you can't see their emotional state. You know, all you all you have is your own personal bias, you know, and like it's it's you know in theater, one of the things one of the things that we learned early on, you know, you take a three word sentence and you say it a thousand different ways, you know, not maybe not technically a thousand, but how much difference there can be in just a very small amount of written text. And so we're losing a lot, and a lot of communication goes very wrong and very badly just simply i think just because it's written you know i i really want to see and i've found this out about myself is that i have a really hard time i read into i i project on a personal level this is something that i've had to figure out about myself over the last year throughout a lot of different kinds of conflicts within activist circles is that i definitely project my own biases onto written communications like i i always i always I think it's really easy to do that. You know what I mean? So it's like, I'm prioritizing in 2018 verbal communications at, like, pretty much all costs. As soon as something gets even slightly heated, it has to get out of written language because it just it just spirals. And I see this with other people, too, is that it's so easy, these, like, you know, your digital conversations, you know, Facebook rants, whatever, things get taken wrong, and they just spiral out of control. The other thing about it's so dehumanizing to have just something words on a page so it's easier to be angry at words on a page than it is to someone that you're looking at and you're seeing that you're upsetting you know what I mean so like I I just really hope that we can find the strength to have in person or just by phone just vocal conversations with people more um I think we avoid it because it's harder (laughs) <laughs> in many ways because you do have to hear their other that you have to hear their pain too
1: you know yeah i that perspective really hits home and that's one of the things that i realized in this conversation is that i know people that texting feels a lot better for being able to have some intense conversations with people where they feel like it wouldn't work that well in person. And I think I sided with that a lot more until I had this conversation with this person. And then I reflected on it and I thought about it because I know that tone feels really intense by text message to this person. And so I almost immediately regretted sending the text messages that I did. Mm. And then, and like in suggesting let's talk in person, really wanted to stick by that because that conversation... I think, as you say, it would feel really different to hear tone, to hear um, Mm -hmm. depth of emotion and complexity, and um, to be able to say and have this person hear my voice saying, I really love you, which is why I wanna have this conversation, I think would be a lot different. And you're right, it is challenging. It's a lot, it's an out in many ways to have a conversation just by text message instead of actually doing it in person. And um, one of the many ways that I think co- uh, technology has complicated our lives in a lot yeah. of ways.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, it does sort of come down to accountability, too, because you can avoid accountability, I think, by not having to see someone's face. Yeah. You know, or hear their voice. Yeah. Um just like personal feeling it. You know? Yeah. It's hard to feel that you hurt somebody. I it's a hard feeling to hear that. You totally. Know? And I mean you can hear that by written word too. Yeah. You know? But there's something specifically very human about hearing pain in somebody's voice.
1: You know? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. And if you're not hearing seeing it in their eyes or if you can't see their eyes, hearing it in their voice or whatever ability way makes sense just being physically together mm-hmm. is so profound.
0: Mhm. I believe in energy, you know, you share energy too. Yeah, you know. And totally. you, you, it's really hard to share energy long distance. <laughs> you know. I mean, uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. I've always felt a little bit cheesy when I'm uh, sending a lot of love and good energy to somebody through text message. I think it works, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's
0: one thing that does work. Yeah. You, like, you can. I think you can. That's a good point. I think you actually can. I think virtual hugs can feel like a real hug. Mm. You know?
1: Well, good. I hope so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. How, I mean, how do we instigate more conflict resolution? Is just training? Is just educating people? Or... I mean, how do you do that? You can't force somebody into an accountability process. You can't force somebody to do conflict resolution with you, can you? I mean...
1: I think it's sort of a ripple effect. That if you offer it, if you make it accessible to people, if you offer community trainings and if you offer community dialogue and then tell people that this doesn't stay in this training, this doesn't stay in this room, like, once you've um, started to absorb some of these things, the only way that things are going to change is if you actually put them into daily practice. <clears throat> and I think that that's where this begins to change, is, is not just having that conversation, but being able to observe it too. <clears throat> um, and so I think about it when I... Have altercations with people Or I've I've thought about it in in different ways That um, My method in the past Was Usually not to engage In public situations where there was Conflict or confrontation Um, And one of those reasons is because Confrontation and conflict is really triggering For me because of um, Childhood abuse But also I feel like I have a responsibility in some ways even just to myself to engage with some of those people and some of it has been harassment for being queer and some of it has been angry altercations in parking lots because of perceptions about driving (laughs) and you did this or you Mm -hmm. did that and and some of it is political. Um, And I think that my... I'm trying to... uh, nudge myself out of my shell into conversing more and responding more and that there are really constructive ways that I can respond and show that conflict resolution um, those conflict resolution skills that I'm even just learning now Mm -hmm. I really didn't know that much about conflict resolution until I got this job Mm -hmm. and I'm still learning Mm -hmm. Um, and it's something that a lot of the (laughs) trainings and conferences that our students want to go to are things that I want to go to. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That I'm just trying to think more critically about it because if we have students who are coming into the program or if we have visitors that are prospective students who have questions, it would be really awkward for me to look at them and say, well, I just work here. I don't know anything about conflict resolution. (laughs) Um, So Mm -hmm. being able to recognize it (sighs) To have that conversation where we can vocalize and say, this is an issue for everyone. It's an issue for us that we're together in this office. It's going to be an issue for all of us in our personal lives. Um, And so that's something that literally relates to everything. Mm -hmm. I think that now more than ever, especially if we can find the littlest, most simplest basic tools... Of resolving conflict and being able to have more constructive, non combative dialogue is essential to being able to start to resist the constant barrage of conflict that is coming at us from the media and the White House and these people who are exhibiting behaviors and styles of communication and socializing that are inherently conflict based um and the youngest among us are seeing those naturalized and um normalized in these situations that I think in some ways that the media approaches it or people respond to it and they shake their heads or they look the other way or say we just need to ignore this sometimes it just doesn't do enough yeah if we aren't actually yeah. practicing what we want to see in our own heated situations Um, And if we act like, well, that's just them, it's not just them. Now it's just a part of our larger culture.
0: And it's so painful when it's people on your own side. You know, like, it sucks when it's conflict with, you know, conflict is always kind of hard. But when it's with people you love, it's just so much more painful. You know, like, being fighting with other leftists just, like is take so many spoons <laughs> it just like hurts me so badly yeah. and it hurts so many people so badly a lot of us are really sensitive too. so it's yeah. like and a lot of us are introverts I'm like really an introvert so it's hard to when conflict arises it's it's um it's hard to get that right level of conflict so it's zero to a hundred you know and for yeah. me I don't know this is person I'm speaking from personal experience, but I've found that some of the, like, best experiences I've had in activism have been positive conflict. Um, you know, like, I have people, when you have built a relationship with people, you know, and you're working on problems, and problems come up, and their mistakes happen, and conflicts happen, and arguments happen, and when they are resolved in, like, a trusting, like hearing each other green lens assuming best intentions way it's so satisfying like it just feels so like it's just a huge like ah, like a sigh of relief when those when those things go well because then you end up with something much stronger yeah. you know you know because both people everybody tends to bring something to the table in a new perspective and if there's a way to like get those things represented and spoken through and worked out um just the end product is so much stronger and so like Practicing that positive, c- conflicting thing is not only important, it's, like, really helpful. It's also, anarchist praxis is preventative measures, right? We want to stop, like, stop fascism before it starts. Like, work work towards a better world, like, work against these negative forces in a preemptive, well, preemptive is, that's a fraught word, but a way where we can, like, stop it early so that it doesn't get to the point of, like, intensive conflict, and that, I think, is a scalable situation where you can have, like, these, like, micro-conflicts between each other if, they, if we can, like, step in and, like, have these, like, difficult conversations earlier before they get way out of hand, you know what I mean? If, if we're willing to, like, sort of, like, be... Uh, step in and you know, call each other out, but then that call-out culture is also another kind of difficult conversation... I guess.
1: Yeah, that's that's its own can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> I think some people try to rephrase it as calling in mm. or opening a dialogue, um, but it makes me think of what some anarchists I know talk about in terms of like circle a, anarchy is circle H and you can't have circle A without circle H and circle H being healing, um, and taking care of yourself. Um, and that being able to address conflict is a part of healing. Um, and is definitely a part of self care and that call out culture because it is so combative is not doing the work of healing is not doing the work of being able to self-care, mm. um, or help others self-care. And I think even just in calling it, call out, like calling somebody out, um, even just calling it that rather than saying, I want to have a conversation with you. Bring you in. Yeah. Yeah.
0: calling out, that kind of sounds just like we're talking about the ejecting people from spaces. Right. You know, you're out.
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah where I'm going to isolate you among all others mm. as this person who did this thing and make you an example. Yeah. is like being called out on something. I'm going to make you the example for everybody else to learn from. Um, When I want to address conflict, if I'm having an issue with somebody, the last thing that I want to do is like make an example of them in front of everybody else. And sometimes I think that that's the effect that some of this has, um, this very isolating. It feels sort of like a coliseum. Mm, Um, that somebody's going to get publicly shamed. Um, I think that that is ego feeding in a lot of ways. Um, and it's non-constructive, and it's really abusive, depending on the way that somebody's using it. And I think Like you said, words are powerful. Um, They mean very different things to different people. um, And they carry a lot of weight. And interpretation is huge. And so just the idea of the words calling out um, rather than having a different way of putting it, like having a conversation or Mm -hmm. calling somebody in. Or
0: addressing Um, an issue or something. Yeah. One of the best, um, a lot of it does come down to trust, you know, these good conversations I've had have generally been with people that I have, um, built a relationship with already, you know, that we have a trusting, we can trust each other with, um, like they know that I'm going to hear them and I know that they're going to hear me, you know, and that can be hard to build trust. Um, especially, I think, in a situation with um, scary activist work where there is a lot of fear of betrayal and fear of, um, you know, yeah. people you know, snitching or all of these things. So, like, building trust can be really hard and so important. I just wanted to bring me up to, bring, a, bring us to another thing I wanted to talk to you about is the power of dance seems like a non sequitur, but one of the best trust exercises or like trust, um, or conflict resolution workshops I've done was within a dance framework where we, and it was a, it was about consent. It was a a dance workshop about consent and trust and conflict. And I think all those things kind of work together, you know, where we use our physical, physical space to like read each other to know if it was when it was okay to touch and or not touch or like move around each other and like be aware of each other's presence and each other's comfort levels and like each other's, um, and then just the idea of like continuous movement, um, you know, cause we, we had talked about dance and you're a dancer,
2: yeah.
0: you know, and so you would do dance and you do conflict resolution work and you do activist work and I think that there is probably just with you, at least a through line with how those things connect Do you see a connection there? or? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah? (laughs) Yeah. We just got all dance nerdy, and I love it. (laughs) Um, I do have... uh, I have danced for a very long time, and I've always loved to dance. And I immersed myself in learning more about dance. The very... um, isolated, very specific Western conception of dance when I got into college, which is to say that I started doing jazz and ballet Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. modern. I would sit in the library for hours reading dance magazine and old dance books. And I I had a dance teacher who had danced with some companies in the 70s um, and in the 80s. Who was very much of this very classical, um, I would say, high society um, dance perspective that is interesting because it's, this has been on my mind over the last few days because the artistic director of the New York City Ballet, I believe, um, was just... Ousted from his position and asked to retire because he was accused of, um, verbal and physical abuse by some former principal dancers in the company. Wow. Um, and people who've come forward to tell their stories amidst all of the other conversations currently happening right now mm-hmm. about, um, sexual harassment, um, and very patriarchal misogynistic abuse. um, and that I was not surprised whatsoever because there is such a long history of misogyny mm-hmm. and sexism and really severe emotional abuse in dance companies mm. um, and from artistic directors and from teachers and that the the teacher that I had, who is very much of that perspective, um, it took me... A really long time to realize the different dynamics of that abusive relationship Mm. and that it was very emotionally abusive and mentally abusive um, and that the perspective that was always put on me was that I was good but I would never be that good Mm. and I would I would maybe be able to get a role like a, a minimal role in a company Um, But I would never be the perfect, amazing dancer that some people are. Um, And that the dream that I had in my head was just never achievable. And that my body would never be good enough. And that um, I would just never have that skill because I started too late in life. Mm. Rather than dance being this amazing thing that so many people can share in. Mm -hmm. And that our love for it is what makes it amazing not necessarily the different skills in it. Mm -hmm. And so um, the conflict that has existed in dance for me has definitely been a relationship between myself and the thing that I thought I loved for so long that eventually I had to walk away entirely.
2: Mm -hmm. And I
1: walked away probably about a year and a half to two years ago. I stopped taking class altogether. Um, Mm -hmm. That I just found myself going to the studio And I had continued doing ballet. Um, I continued doing modern. And I started doing some aerial dance after I graduated from college. Um, And it was still hard for me to go to class without having this really self-abusive cycle of feeling like Mm -hmm. that I would never be good enough. Mm
0: -hmm. And I would
1: go to class and I would leave class crying. Um, And I didn't like the way that... It was always in dance class that my teachers would notice before anybody else if I had gained or lost weight. Um, Mm. It was always that. Very much um, a space that I had been taught to be so critical of myself. And um, I realized in that moment that I really had to let that go. And like re fall in love with something that I had taught myself not to love very much anymore mm-hmm. um, and so in my in my particular place, there was a a lot of um self conflict and internal conflict, but there was also outward conflict of seeing different companies have a lot of interpersonal issues, and the relationships I had with some of my dance teachers was really unhealthy with this particular teacher that I referenced earlier um, a lot of that relationship revolved around trying to be supportive of somebody who had some really abusive qualities to her that I didn't want to see as abusive but I also didn't really have mental and emotional skills or experience to be able to recognize and stand up for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have since cut that person out of my life. Um, But I've seen a lot of that reflected in dance culture and companies that
2: Mm.
1: of their expectations of what dancers, like what ability dancers bring to the table and that they control their bodies in particular ways and they control their diets and, Control their social lives, and they really give themselves over to the art entirely. But their cruel their careers are really short and brutal, um, and the, that's heartbreaking in so many ways. Because, you know, I mean, just it, because somebody's thirty five doesn't mean they can't dance anymore.
0: It's what you're describing sounds so much like activism right now.
1: Yeah, <laughs> 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 like just all these short and brutal,
0: and all this puri- puritanical. Type of situation of culture, yeah. and sometimes some abusive, um, you know, interactions <clears throat> and relationships between people. That it's it's too brutal. People burn out. Yeah. You know, and, like you can't be good enough. You know, there's all these rules, and like people can't step into it. And it's this space that's supposed to be so liberatory, and ends up being so oppressive. Yeah, you know
1: what I mean. Go on and on. Yeah. As, like as you can tell, <laughs> I've got some shit to say.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the dance is supposed to be and is so liberatory, yeah. you know. So why is it so have to? Be- and it's it's so. And it's not just you, you know. Dance in this culture, in our culture, is so full of shame and pain for so many people. You know, like we feel people just feel like they can't dance. Like yeah. We can't move our bodies. Like we're not in control, in charge of our own bodies. We don't have any agency you know, I don't know, to, to do that, like, you're, you're not good enough, you know, like, nobody feels good enough, you know? Right. Um, it's sad. It's yeah. awful.
1: I've thought about returning to school. I was in a grad program that I dropped out of, and one of the things I've thought about returning and doing research on is dance. Um, researching particularly Western conceptions of dance, appropriation... Um, and using methods of critique to build a space that combats, um, a lot of systems of repression in the classroom, like sexism and racism and ableism, Mm -hmm. heterosexism, um, and having as much dialogue in the classroom and conversations as there is movement Um, and what it would look like to try to teach a class where um, I try to bring those perspectives and also my vulnerability to the forefront as much as possible and to talk about my experience and be transparent about it and also be transparent about the really hard parts of it to be able to say things like, I'm in the midst of, you know... um, trying to be better about taking care of myself as a queer person, as a survivor, as um, somebody who has mental illnesses, and some of that is related to anorexia, and my body is what it is, but it's not the perfect body. It's not the body that I would ever want my students' bodies to be, and for a long time wasn't the body that my professors wanted it to be, but in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I thought about what that would look like and that um, before I moved out of Southern Oregon to come back to Eugene I was teaching a workshop at um, an aerial dance studio that I had been dancing with and I really loved it I was really getting into it but I was also um, in the middle of beginning to lose a lot of weight and part of that was leaving a really stressful situation And part of that was changing my eating habits to be healthier, and part of that was also slowly sliding back into anorexia. And so I've thought about what it would be like to return because in recent months, um, my immediate circles have been worried about the shape of my body, and I've been worried about the shape of my body, recognizing some of the things that I'm doing that kind of walk a fine line between being healthy and wanting to be healthier about my body and also slipping back into some old bad habits of anorexia. Um, So it's, it's an emotional process. Dance is the thing that is so deeply embedded in my heart And I held on to this dream for so long of wanting to study it and get my degree and be an amazing, wonderful, beautiful dancer. And I am an amazing, wonderful, beautiful dancer. I don't have to have a degree to prove that. I don't have to be a part of a company. I don't have to have the perfect split jump. Um, I don't have to, like, dance on points to be able to do that. Um... And I believe that now more than I've ever believed it. Um, But that's also a process in getting myself to believe those things just as it is as much of a process in believing that my body is perfect and wonderful, whatever shape it is. And my brain, as much as it is really hard for myself to function a lot of the time, and I convince myself that I am so unhappy and i've been so unhappy for so long and that i i am really good at convincing myself that life isn't worth it that that's like a part of a, a long experience of depression and like the self-harm and the self-abuse and like all of this mental health stuff that i'm working through is so deeply tied to the relationship that i have with dance which is also tied to conflict. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Yep. Yep. That was... Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, our society's relationship, everybody... Our relationships with our own bodies is so fraught, and it seems like something that should be so natural. If there's anything you have that's just yours, it's your body but we're also disassociated from our own skin, you know? Um, That's one of the reasons I love dance so much, is, like, I had a lot of dissociative problems, like, really bad dissociative problems, but they tend to be lessened a lot by dance, you know? Like, if I can move, if I can dance, then my dissociation was much, um, not as bad. I don't know, it's something about, like, just realizing that you are connected to your space and your body and just, like, the stretch. And, of course, there's a physiological, um, chemical things that happen when you both are happy, when dance makes me happy, and as well as just movement of your body, you know. I think it's... We are talking earlier about language. We talk about the revolution. We talk about the movement, you know. Like, that's what we call... What we're doing is the movement, you know, and I think that that language is telling and important because we have to keep moving, you know, but you can't just keep fighting and trudging along. Like the only way that I see any sustainable way of moving is to dance, you know, Emma Goldman, you know, the famous quote, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. You know, the joyousness of dance and the joyousness has been so important to movements throughout history, you know, I was realizing, I was listening to myself that I'm talking about, like, the fraught relationship with dance, and a lot of that comes from my own white perspective, that in other cultures, dance is obvious, more, more, easily, importantly tied to social movements and change and, like, mental health and spiritual health, you know what I mean, in a way that um, my own personal, like, American white culture is just completely... Devoid, and maybe that is part of why it comes into the um, we're talking about appropriation, which is a huge conversation. You're talking about dance in this country, especially, you know, everywhere, but like in America, the appropriation of dance yeah. um, from from other cultures by the white culture is, um, if you have really intense and important conversation to have.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I- the conversation that um, I was really interested in, particularly related to modern dance, and the so-called originators of modern dance, like Martha Graham and Ted Shawn and Ruthie Dennis, and a lot of their movement came from inspiration from observing um, traditional dance practices. ...in communities outside of the U.S. Ted Shawn and Ruth St. Dennis traveled in northern Africa. Martha Graham traveled outside of the U.S., I believe, in parts of South America. and So they're often lauded as the creators of this amazing style of dance... ...when much of that movement came from other communities... ...that have practiced traditional forms of movement for generations... who were never actually cited Um, and I think just with many forms of white racism white supremacy and cultural appropriation dance is definitely one of them Mm -hmm. Um, um, on the subject of recognizing dance as uh, a method of bringing together community and and of movement Of recognizing that word movement of occupying um, multiple definitions, social justice work, being able to see it. Um, In some of my courses in grad school and something that I tried to bring into my teaching in the classroom because I was a a grad teaching assistant and graduate instructor was stretching and movement is that sometimes our teachers would break up class in the middle of um, a course and tell us to take five minutes to do whatever we needed to do or take five minutes to stretch. or, um, And that I really wanted to bring that element back into the classroom, um, but it's something really intentional. It's not just a bathroom break Mm -hmm. um, that I would tell people, we're going to take three minutes to do a stretch, and I don't care what stretch looks like for you. You can close your eyes. You can meditate. You can get on the floor, you can do the splits, whatever feels best for your body, knowing that there were a range of different movements um, and styles of movement and the different bodies of the people in my classroom. Um, And that's something that, should I return to teaching, if I go back to grad school, I think I'll probably get a degree in something social justice, systems of oppression related, Um, and then get an instructor position at a community college and try to reincorporate that element into the classroom is that those are the two two things that mean the most to me is movements, the movements in multiple (laughs) ways. Um, So I think that that's really profound. I had never thought of that before. I just feel
0: like dance will save us all If <laughs> you think all the things that I care about um, empowerment consent you know like understanding our bodies loving our bodies you know the power of um, um, movement and liberation and uh, bringing the joyous the joy back into the revolution as both because that's how you um, avoid violence you know whenever possible and all of these things I feel like can be encompassed in the act of dance and yeah. bringing in community, bringing community together, you know, all a joy, like a celebration, uh, is, um, is all in dance, you know, like I've always loved dance. I've always been a dancer. I've always, you know, I did, I did, um, dance for professional theater for a long time. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, design for dance. Um, So me figuring out how to re-engage dance into our um, praxis is something that I'm really interested in and, like, talking to you and talking about how that, like, can ties into all of this, like, conflict, both internal and external. Like, I think those are really important conversations for us to have and try and figure out. And, like, why is it so hard, you know? Like, what is it about this, like, liberatory act that has gotten so bent up into something that was so painful you know like how did that happen and how can we undo that and how can we like prevent that you know because what other people are getting into dance and then just get crushed it's awful
1: yeah I think about when I was finishing my undergraduate degree I was in my capstone course looking over some documents with my classmates brought to us by our professor um, that talked about sociology majors and what careers they had and there was one person who was teaching hip-hop dance to youth and I pointed that out, and I said, that's really cool, because that's what I'm passionate about. And at the time, I kind of felt like I was bullshitting, that I needed to say something <laughs> in class, and that's really the thing that spoke the most to me, so uh-huh. fine, I would say it. Um, but that I wasn't really sure how that person actually got that job yeah. with a sociology degree. <laughs> but really, it's so deeply connected, Yeah. and um, our what I've seen of so many people who've majored in sociology or social sciences in general is that they're really deeply invested in social justice movements. Mm -hmm. Um, And that our passions and the things that make us happy are really at the heart of that is being able to find that happiness and find stability and um, fuel us being able to be um, prosperous that's a word I've been using lately. Hmm. It's not just um, successful or engaged, but, but prosperous. What does prosperity look like in marginalized communities? What can it look like? And that I, I believe that um, that is an ongoing thing that will probably shift in a lot of ways in my brain. I'll envision it in different ways throughout my lifetime Um, and be dedicated to seeing that come to fruition in different ways Mm -hmm. um, depending on where I'm at with the movement whatever that movement might be and lately it's been it's been in different ways that I've been involved but much less um, at the forefront than I used to be really immersed in it all the time Mm -hmm. I lived and breathed my activism in some ways and since then um, I got a job that I would say is definitely related to social justice, mm-hmm. um, but is also something I can just leave at work. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. the scheduling and the records and stuff doesn't have to follow me home, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. But I can have really awesome, meaningful, profound conversations with professors and students in the office. Mm-hmm. I can be a part of the trainings. I can help see their prosperity as well as mine. Yeah. Um, yeah and I wonder where that will take me is that now that word it popped into my brain over the weekend I finally come to a place in my mental health wellness and journey that I've been on over the last year since um I started some really necessary and long coming counseling um with a really amazing counselor and I started taking antidepressants. that I finally got to a point um, this December that I had some things I wanted to say to my family members that I've been meaning to say for a long time. And I wrote them in cards to them for Christmas and it was intense, um, but really profound. And one of the things I kept telling them was like, I am really proud of our survival and I'm more proud of our futures am more proud of our prosperity. So it's been something that's been on my mind and I think that that's probably going to be a word of, that fuels me and pause, like, gives me pause for perspective um, and reflection a lot in the coming years.
0: I love that. I feel like the word prosperity has been hijacked, maybe the prosperity equaling wealth in a way that's material wealth. Yeah. You know, the prosperity gospel is all about how it's good to be rich, and that means you're more loved by God if you have money. You know, and so, like, right. reclaiming the word prosperity mean like, that's not what prosperity is. Yeah. You know, like, prosperity is a wealth of, you know, how, like a wealth of spirit, or like a wealth of yeah. community, a wealth of love. I think it's beautiful. I love, I really like that, you know, because like for me, the word prosperity had negative connotations because of the connotation with prosperity gospel. But um, your description is, I like that much better. And I think that's important <laughs> to take back those, that language from how it's been so warped, yeah. you know. Thank you. So, yeah, we only have a few minutes left. Is there anything you want to talk about before we go? Oh, good, 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 solid five, five minutes. I guess
1: we haven't touched on faith much.
0: That's true, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um how's your how's your faith going? How's my faith? <laughs> <laughs> I have come to a place that faith was something that felt really uncomfortable for me through my childhood. I was raised by two people who were very secular. One who was really staunchly non-religious um and one who was very peripherally religious but rarely brought it up and um never went to church didn't really celebrate religious holidays in the sense of them being religious Mm -hmm. we would do christmas and open presents but we wouldn't talk about christ Mm -hmm. (laughs) we would do easter and find eggs but we wouldn't talk about jesus Mm -hmm. um So when I went to Catholic school in middle school and high school and had to go to Mass and take a year of Catholicism every year, that was a big shift. And that was pretty alienating, especially being super queer and coming out to myself in my head and feeling really isolated. Mm -hmm. And as an adult, coming out to my community and my family my friends and feeling that a lot of faith communities were really Mm -hmm. anti-queer and that it was an isolated few that weren't and also not really being that interested Mm -hmm. in queer of faith activism um, and faith at all and then uh, i friend of mine and former lover converted to the uh, Mormon church and that really knocked me on my ass. And I panicked and I thought that she was forced to convert and I was worried about her and she kept assuring me that she was fine and wishing me well and then stopped responding entirely. And for... A long time, I was angry and said a lot of disparaging things about religion and queer people and uh, felt that someone I loved was stolen from me and felt like um, religion was not something that I would ever understand and never wanted to excommunicate people from my life because of faith and it took me a long time to stop being angry and to come to an understanding that whatever it was that she found it made her happy and that's all I wanted for her and it hurt to be cut out of her life but it's what she wanted um and then she left the Mormon church and then she contacted me (laughs) and When that happened, I was hesitant, but interested in having conversations. And she was really honest and upfront and apologetic, Um, but said that she had found something that was that. It was something that she wanted at the time. It felt right. And she felt like she had to let go a lot of her past and a lot of people that she had called community before. And that she had found a community that felt really loving and safe for her. And she was in it for as long as it felt right. And as soon as it stopped feeling right, she left. um, And went back to dating women. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, I was also beginning to date somebody who was reconnecting with her faith. um, As... A queer person who had been affected by her Catholic upbringing in some pretty um, severe and stifling ways Mm. in which her church community tried to pray the gay out of her Mm. and had some really negative experiences that she walked away from her faith for a while and was trying to reconnect with it and, and find what it meant to be Christian and queer. Um, and what it meant for her to have a relationship with Jesus and God and to love herself and that she could be a part of that picture. And I knew somebody who also went to the University of Berkeley School of Religion. And so I was starting to come around to wanting to have a more honest conversation with myself of knowing and loving people in my life who felt really connected to their faith. Um, and that that was only one representation of faith among many representations of faith, Christianity being just one of them um, and wanting to understand that a little bit more and and what it meant for me if I have faith. What is that faith? What does it mean? And um, I've tried to have more honest conversations with myself about that and find ways to be... um, to be in solidarity with the people that I love with their faith and it like, doesn't mean that I have to partake whatsoever um, but I found with the ones that I love I want to be supportive of the things that feed them and make them feel whole and faith is one of those things and so I've started to connect with that a little bit more is that um, they're are parts of it that are really meaningful to me. Jesus was a real person. His real actions were really radical and amazing (laughs) and (laughs) uphold a lot of moral and ethical views that are super relatable to me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've begun to unpack my own resistance to things and how... That also works against creating more community among my community, the queer community, and with people that I love. Um, And also understanding that that is just one very isolated perspective and that I know a lot of people of a lot of different religions. And we often homogenize and isolate it to just Christianity when there's so many different ways of understanding the world and life, and why we're here. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the spiritual journey is so um, individual, you know. It's, I think one of the problems with a lot of sort of religious structures is the idea that everyone needs the same path, that everyone is supposed to be at a certain place with their faith all the time, and that can be very oppressive. And that faith means this should mean the same thing to everybody, you know, in this very specific way. And um, I see a lot of people sort of saying, like, no, that's not fair. That's not true. You know, like, you can have community that's bonded without it being homogenous. You know, um, having a faith community that loves and respects each other and loves and respects people that are different than them and still be strong... You know? Like, there's this, like, fear that if you don't have a monoculture, then you're not going to get along, you know? And I, I think, um, seeing sort of radical queer people of faith is one of those really interesting, um, cross-pollination intersections of different, what's seemingly a lot of times, um, contrary identities and worldviews, um, that's a really important part of this breaking up of homogeneity in our society, and our culture, and in radical activism. Um, it was exciting to hear about your friend who is a radical queer um, person of faith and how it fuels their activism, you know. i um, obviously tie it to that, too, because I am a <laughs> radical queer person of faith. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so... Um, I love hearing openness from your journey, which was so secular and, like, hostile to religion in a way that was totally valid. Like, <laughs> like, it's, like a lot of the hostility to religion is com- absolutely valid in our society. It's so toxic, so much of it. You know, and then um, sort of, like, having that sort of open up, like, that's hard. And I think that's a struggle that a lot of our, the movement in general is having. A lot of activists... Spaces is having that conversation in general because the spiritual community and faith community has always been a really important part of um, social movements and social justice. But there still mm-hmm. remains this real tension between that you know, um, opiate of the masses, sort of Marxist and like early anarchist anti-religious sentiment. Um, so it's really refreshing to hear your your perspective on like your own journey with that. It's very honest. Um, I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me now looking back, I feel like I've I've gotten to this age now that I'm starting to see a lot of the choices that my parents made when I was a kid because they were trying to parent the best way that they knew how. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's no... Um, perfect parenting book for how to do all the things Mm -hmm. and they tried to do what they thought was right um and really the one who's the most secular is my mom was actually raised methodist and the point for her that she realized that she wasn't christian and she didn't believe in god was because she went to a bible camp when she was a teenager where a lot of the youth Spoken tongues, and they found God in Jesus, and um, like their finding their faith wasn't just them finding their faith; it was also like very evident to everybody else that they found their faith. Hmm. And she just didn't feel a part of any of it, and she didn't feel anything. And um, but one person that she references a lot is the pastor from her church. Is that that was the most meaningful part of her faith upbringing? Was that she really liked that man? because she liked what he did. And what he did was he went into parts of the community that nobody else would. Um, and in rural Southern Oregon at the time, there was a hepatitis outbreak in a commune and nobody would help those people. They were largely shunned by the rural towns that were near them. Um, but he went out to visit them on a regular basis and he was a doctor and he taught them first aid practices and, um, different ways of hygiene and and was trying to support them and he took my mom with him one time and she she got to see um, his faith in practice and his community engagement and that that was meaningful to her. And so I know like some of the people that have been really formative in her understandings of um, being able to build community and do good work that is really um, meaningful to her, were by people of faith in her faith community. Um, and they could share something. And that that we've talked about those things and that that was meaningful to her is that like he didn't just talk about the work of Jesus. He tried to live those principles. Um, and that that's also what's moved me of the people I know who've worked in the faith community is the people who don't just... Talk about the actions of Jesus, they really try to embody those things too, and that I think I am really when i when I think about my f- faith I think that a lot of my faith comes from the idea of trust and love, and that my trust and love, especially in the ones that I've lost that's <laughs> That's the whole point, is that I have faith that at some point I will reconnect with them. Um, And if... I don't know what else that would be but faith. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that I try to embody the amazing things that they did. And I, I think that we can lead by example from Jesus. We can lead by example from... Um, the meaningful people who've been in our lives and that I think one of the things that's really moved me a lot as an adult is recognizing the people that we often really romanticize as also incredibly human and very flawed and that they made mistakes. I'm sure Jesus made mistakes. (laughs) I'm sure that that was all a part of the learning process and trying to lead by example, Mm -hmm. um, and that Jesus made friends with and hung out with a lot of people who were treated as deplorable on that, like, their mistakes could not be forgiven or they were not socially acceptable, Mm -hmm. um, but that those people were human and deserving of love. Um, And the people in my life who've made mistakes to me, I would never say that they're not deserving of love. The things that they've done the people who've inspired me like the friendships that they've built and the ways that they've forgiven and the hardships that they've overcome and the kindness that they use through all of those things that's so inspiring me that's so inspiring to me in the way that I want to lead my life if I had to define my faith I would say that that's a big that would be a big part of the definition and I'm still not great at defining exactly what my <laughs> faith is that definition will probably never be
0: solidified. Yeah. I think that's part of the that's yeah. the faith is a verb, both in a personal journey and in a in a practice. You know, as the body of Christ, we're here doing His work. You know, and yeah. like faith is a is a is a practice, not just in a not just a theory, not just a feeling. You know, I I love that remembering that everybody is everybody is deserving of love, and then coming to the conflict resolution place with that understanding that everybody is deserving of love can be hard, you know um you know, the love thine enemies is the hardest
1: Oh God! Hardest.
0: and um yeah, you know it's this interpersonal conflict that is when we have to remember the most practice the most grace and when it's the hardest to do seems like a unfair (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. you know um but i i love that just refocusing on on love always leading with love yeah yeah Yeah.
1: that's a beautiful note to end on that is a beautiful note to end on (laughs) thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it thank you so much
0: for being on this was wonderful This am sure a really good conversation.
1: There's probably 30 things that I meant to say. I totally <laughs> forgot. But, you know, that leads us into having future conversations. Yes, it does.
0: More. It's more conversations, always. More communication, more love, more talking. Absolutely. Okay, thank you.
2: Thank you.